but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. The power of transformation. It's an interesting word that Paul uses here, be transformed. It's actually in the Greek the same word that Matthew and Mark use when they're talking about what happened to Jesus at his transfiguration. It's the Greek word metamorpho. That word should be ringing some bells, metamorpho. Somewhere in the dusty archives of my mind, I remember metamorphos, metamorphosis. Oliver's smiling at him, maybe because it's not so long ago for him that he was talking about, ah, oh, yes, that's right, caterpillar, pupae, butterfly, metamorphosis, tadpole, sorry, egg, tadpole, frog, metamorphosis. A total change, a transformation. It's the word that was used of Jesus when he was transfigured, a total change, a transformation. It's the same word that Paul uses here about our minds, a transformation, a metamorphosis that takes place to be able to appreciate, determine and obey God's word and his will. We'll come back to what that looks like in a moment, but let's just back up for a second to talk about what we talked about last week, because last week we looked at Romans chapter 12 verse 1. It's going to take us about 21 weeks to get through Romans 12 at this rate, uh, but trust me, over the next two weeks we're going to speed up the process a little bit. But last week we talked about Romans chapter 1, which talked about being living sacrifices. One of the, uh, one of the things that we sometimes don't realise happens in church, and I've been as guilty of this as anyone, is that we use language which shapes our thinking without us meaning to. So, for example, if I said to you, uh, when a person becomes a Christian, they give their heart to the Lord. Who's heard that expression? It's very common, isn't it? We would want everyone to give their hearts to the Lord. Typically, what we mean by that is that that person gives their entire being, if you like, to God. But rather, unfortunately, what can sometimes happen is that we can think, well, we give our hearts to the Lord, what about the rest of us? What about the body? And so the emphasis last week was actually on the reality that we are to worship God using our bodies. We're to be a living sacrifice and everything that we do in our body is actually to be an act of worship. That's really important theology. It would be true to say, in fact, that no worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward or abstract or mystical and doesn't engage the physical body. Authentic Christian worship always involves the control of the negative or the ungodly use of our bodies and more positively an active and positive presentation of our physical being to the glory of God. That's a complicated way of saying uh, everything we do in worship uh, involves everything we do. Everything we do is actually an act of worship. It's not just what we do here on a Sunday morning. In Romans 12, 2... However, Paul moves on from talking about our bodies to talking about our minds and I'm so thankful for this because uh, on occasions I've heard people say, you know, if you want to be a Christian, if you're going to be one of those churchgoers, you need to leave your mind at the door. Have you heard that expression? You need to check your mind in at the door of the church because what church people do is get together and talk about myths and legends and fairy stories, not real stuff right? No, not at all. 
Faith is not about putting aside rational thinking and believing in unbelievable. To this way of thinking, Christianity is either not worthy of critical thinking or would collapse in the face of serious scholarship. But here's the thing. I can think of no other person whose life has been examined in such minute detail as the life of Jesus. I can think of no other person whose historicity, the truth of his life, his teaching, his words, his actions, his miracles have been examined to the degree and and sometimes very critically as the life of Jesus and yet he stands. I can think of no other book that has been examined, not not necessarily by empathetic scholars either, uh, looked at it, drilled into it and yet it stands. I read just uh, in the last week or two a statement made by an author who said that if the blowtorch of academic criticism, rational thought and historical accuracy was applied to the life of Muhammad and the text of the Quran in the same way that it has been to the life of Jesus and the text of the Bible, Islam would fall over. Islam doesn't allow that same examination. You know what happens to anyone who does. So I'm glad that Paul speaks about the mind. I'm glad too if we jump uh, out of this text into another. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter actually said these words. He spoke of the living hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and reminded his audience that the prophets of old had searched with great intent, trying to find out the time and the circumstances in which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing to when the same Spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So Peter says, you know, in the past these scholars did this deep work and then he went on to say, so prepare your minds for action. In other words, don't be lazy thinkers. Use your brains. Be like these people in the scriptures who searched and learnt and wrestled with the text and in so doing discerned the truth. We don't switch off our brains when we come to church. We don't check our brains in at the door as though we are here just to hear myths, legends and fairy tales. However, having said that, Paul doesn't simply say exercise your mind or use your brain. There's lots of emphasis nowadays, actually, uh, on, on brain training, right? As I was speaking about this this morning in Albury, I was talking to a congregation who is predominantly older folks and I said, you know, one of the struggles that I wrestle with sometimes and, and particularly on mornings like this morning is I look at a person, I see that person, I know that person, I've talked to that person many times over, but do you think I can think of the name of that person? And I reckon 90% of the congregation over there, we are, yep, <laughs> we are 100% with you on that. We know, and the emphasis is, okay, there's things that you can do to train your brain. Sudokus, crossword puzzles, even video games, they say, might help. I'm not sure about that. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll park that thought. There are lots of ways to train our brain. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's actually talking about a transformation of our minds, not just training our minds. And the transformation of our minds is something that takes place as the result of two things. The combined work of God's Holy Spirit in us, changing us and our exposure to the Word of God as we dwell in the Word. Those two elements actually transform us, transform our minds. I remember years ago, uh, even way back at Teachers College, a young lady who had no interest in Christianity whatsoever became a Christian. And it was an amazing transformation. She would never talk about the things of God before. She wouldn't have even read the Bible probably. 
And suddenly, with this life of the Holy Spirit in her, her mind was being transformed. She read like she'd never read the Bible before. She wanted to talk about the things of God like she'd never talked about them before. There was a transformation that took place. And, uh, and after coming to know Jesus, she developed this insatiable appetite for the things of God, a transformation that was amazing to watch. And it wasn't just that her humanness had been overhauled. It's not like our minds, this idea of transformation of our minds, is not that God just takes our old mind out and chucks a new one in like you might put a new motor in a car. If that was the case, we wouldn't be talking about transformation, we'd be talking about uh, replacement. Because the language of Romans chapter 2, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 2, is, is written in the ongoing tense. The transformation that takes place is an ongoing transformation. It's a constant reality in our lives. This renewing of our minds is something that happens and should happen every single day. It should actually continue for as long as we are Christians. Now, the question of why this is necessary is a fairly important one and gives me the, the, the great excuse to talk about worldviews, one of my favourite topics, worldview. Who, who was here when we did our night services, worldview stuff? Okay, well, this is fantastic. You guys will be on board here. A worldview, it's not just uh, the view out our bedroom window or out our lantern window. It's not the trees or the creek or whatever it is that we see. Nice that that might be. Our worldview is something way more complicated and deeper. Let me give you the complicated definition. Our worldview is the, uh, catch this, this is fantastic, the culturally structured assumptions, values, commitments and allegiances that underlie our perception of reality and our response to those realities. Isn't that fantastic? And you're saying, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> uh, let's, let's make it simple. Our worldview, in some ways, is the glasses that we use to understand our world, how things work. And that can be really simple things, it can be the deeper things, the simple things. Let me give you an example of the simple things. Back in, I don't know what year it was, we'd just come back from overseas. Uh, we were in transit to living and working in Warrnambool. Uh, I had not been on the Melbourne train system for probably 10 years and much had changed in those 10 years in terms of the ticketing and a whole new fleet of trains. Uh, my parents dropped me off, I think it was at Mitcham Station or somewhere like that, and I thought, I can find my way to the city to catch the train to Warrnambool, no problems. First thing I had to do was buy a ticket. How do you do that nowadays? Because in the old days, you'd go to the window and you'd talk to someone and you'd say, I have a ticket to such a... There was none of that. There was a machine that when I put the right amount of money in, issued a ticket. My worldview had to adopt this new practical thing. I pulled out the ticket. I thought, fantastic, popped it in my pocket. The train came. How do you get into the train? Because the doors didn't just open like they used to anymore. They didn't even have handles on the door to open. There was a button you had to push. Fortunately, someone else was there and he pushed the button. So I got on the train. No worries. Adopting my worldview. As I was sitting there, feeling very proud of myself, some ticket inspectors got on the train and they were working their way down. I had no anxiety about that because I had a ticket in my pocket. They had my ticket. I gave it to them. They said, this ticket has not been validated. What are you talking about? What do you mean validated? They said, well, you're supposed to put it through the validation thing. I thought, well, I've only just paid for it. Surely it's valid. They said, where have you been for the last five years? Well, I said, actually, <laughs> funny, funny story behind that. 
and they said, all right, you will, for today, you don't do this again, you know, this kind of stuff. Changing worldview because of a different context. Those are easy things. Here's something way more complicated that we have to try and get our heads around. Uh, we live in what's known as a monochronic culture. In other words, we do one thing at a time, in order, you know, there's steps we go through. So, for instance, if you go to the bank and there's a heap of people waiting to actually deal with the teller, that's, a, that's not a great example because hardly anyone goes into the bank anymore. But just think about, you know, queuing for anything, queuing to buy tickets for a concert or whatever it might be. How do monochronic people do it? In order. Since COVID, with great distance between us. But at least in order. And you did not want to be that person who got out of order. And you don't want anyone else to get, excuse me, I was here first. Back in line, thank you. But if we were to go to Turkey, for instance, and I just use Turkey as an example because it's just one example of lots of, chron uh, lots of cultures which are polychronic. There's no such thing as queuing. It's national sport. Let's all mob the bench at once and see who can get their ticket first. And you've got to figure out how to do that. It's kind of like a game. For a Westerner, a worldview, queuing, how on earth do you sort this out? For an Easterner, worldview, come to the West, why are these people doing this? Let's just get up to the counter and get in first because that's what we do. You see how our worldview shapes how we look and think about our world. There'll always be differences uh, in cultures and within a culture, but <clears throat> Paul speaks here about not confirming to the pattern of this world or, if you like, the worldview which is framed without reference to God. Paul's basically saying there is a worldview shaped without reference to God which needs to be changed and changed dramatically. And that's a consistent, script, uh, a consistent message we, three, the, we see through the scriptures. For instance, I might have to stop and reboot. <laughs> in Leviticus 18, verses 1 to 5, the people of Israel are going into the land. And uh, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God, you must not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you to. In other words, don't adopt their worldview because they have a very different way of worshipping. They have a different way of understanding how to relate to God. Don't do that. Be careful to obey my laws and careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So God's instruction for his people as they were going into the land is, uh, shape your worldview in relationship to me, not in the way that others in the land do it. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 6, 7 to 8. This is fantastic. He was teaching his disciples how to pray and he said these words, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans because they think they will be heard because of their many words. There's, a, there's an obvious worldview issue, isn't it? The pagans of Jesus' day thought to get the attention of God, you've got to kind of just keep blurting stuff out, you know, hammering away, blah, 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 blah whatever it might be. Jesus said, don't have to do that. The Lord hears you. Come in orderly worship. Don't be like the pagans who, who just babble with their many words because... Uh, you don't, sorry, don't be like them because your Father in Heaven knows what you need before you ask Him. 
don't be like them. And that sums up, in some respects, what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. What is envisaged for the Christian is a complete change, a transformation of the mind away from the standards consistent with the worldview held by people apart from God and transformed instead into a worldview shaped by the life of Christ. There'll be lots of things that are overlapped. For instance, we'll still understand how the trains work together. We'll still understand why we need to sweep up the streets, that kind of stuff. But your worldview in terms of your relationship with God and worship and prayer and all that stuff, transformed, absolutely transformed. Now, as I was preparing uh, this message, I was wondering how to land some of this in application without stating uh, the glaringly obvious and perhaps the inaccurate because it would be really, really easy to lament the fact there's so many things changing in our world all the time. You know, the, the standards of our, shall we, shall we, um, uh, let's go here, um, let's lament, you know, the standards of morality amongst our young people or underage drinking or whatever it might be. We can so easily identify those things, say, well, we don't want to be like that. But there are some tough questions we actually really ought to ask ourselves. And one of the, the challenges really probably is for us, as long as we're focusing on other stuff like that, we're at risk of identifying the speck in the eyes of others and ignoring the log in our own. So here's some questions for us to consider in terms of our worldview, in terms of the transformation of our minds. What am I allowing to shape my thinking there's all sorts of stuff that's coming at us all the time. The news, the papers we read, the, the internet stuff that we're reading, or the books, the YouTube, whatever it might be. What am I allowing to inform my worldview? And if it's not God and His Word, then what is it? Are there subtle things, uh, sorry, are there things subtly influencing me that I don't even realise? What are the dominant voices that I'm hearing and are they congruent with the teaching of the Bible and the life of Jesus? How do they actually line up? One of the challenges that I found really, really caused me to struggle was when we were doing our series uh, last year, the Uncomfortable Question series, where we were taking a bit of a dive into some of the ethics around sexuality and that kind of stuff. There were some people who didn't come to church those nights because they didn't want to think about those things. They didn't want to think about what the Bible taught about that stuff because they knew it would challenge their worldview. That's interesting, isn't it? Christian people who didn't want to be unsettled by what the scripture might teach, didn't want to become unpopular because they might have to change their views. That's where the rubber really hits the road, isn't it? Is my behaviour really in alignment with the will and purpose of God? What am I motivated by? Here's a question I ask all the time, you know, if I'm telling someone a story, am I doing it to actually be edifying or am I just doing it to make myself look good in their sight? Is my my transformed mind actually giving birth to transformed behaviour? Those questions are uncomfortable, but they need to be asked. When we start to ask these sorts of questions and seek to apply a transformed mind, Paul then says, as we move on in the passage, there are some significant challenges and much room for growth. And Paul describes the the uh, results of a transformed mind in the second half of this verse. He says, a transformed mind will be able to test 
sorry, with a transformed mind, we will be able to test, approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Fantastic news. The best news you're going to hear today. With a transformed mind, we can confidently know the future. With a transformed mind, we will be able to know God's will on all sorts of matters. I will be able to tell whether to ride my bike to work because I'll know whether the rain's coming or not. If I'm going shopping, I'll be able to know whether I'm going to get that car park close to the place that I want to go to. With a transformed mind, I'll know God's will. I'll know which car to purchase when I change my car over in a few years' time. I can ask God where to organise my next holiday because he'll tell me when I want to change my mobile phone plan to something a bit cheaper. God will be able to tell me that too. I'll know whether to shop on Wednesday or Thursday and take advantage of the specials, wherever they might be. This is great, isn't it? Except this is not what Paul's talking about. And these things are actually not the fruit of a transformed mind. If you want to know the future details of God's plan for your life or the direction that he might lead you in the manner that I've just described, you don't need a transformed mind, you need a crystal ball. Because we're not talking about transformation, we're talking about divination. Two completely different things. There's a world of difference between praying and labouring for a renewed mind and the habit of asking God to give you a revelation of what to do in every situation you might encounter. Now, there is a caveat that I'll just put in on that. There are times, quite appropriately, where you'll find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do and you can just throw a prayer up there and then. I do this all the time myself. What am I to do, Lord? What's the right decision? Which thing should I say? Mostly he says nothing. As in, he says, don't say anything. Um, You know, there's always, always opportunities for that. But we don't live like that. Because the fruit of a transformed mind is the ability to see the picture from God's perspective, to understand the mind of Christ on whatever, take into account the evidence that there is before us and then make a decision and find that God honours that, whatever it might be. I'll give an example of this by way of conclusion this morning. It's very close to home because it happened right here in this church. One Sunday night, I think it might have been back in 2019, it was pre-COVID anyway, uh, towards the end of the service, um, a gentleman came in from the back and it was one of those occasions where 99% of the congregation would have been really, really pleased to be able to say, oh, you need to talk to the pastor because he was a little, no, he was a lot dishevelled, he was very big um, and, and he was obviously quite aggrieved by something and so, you know, if someone met him at the door and I think somebody did and they said, oh, you know, you need to go and talk to David, he'll be able to, whatever. And so he came down, we were somewhere in the middle of the church there um, and, and he said to me, oh, can we, could we talk in, in private in one of the back rooms? And I kind of did a quick assessment and I thought, no, I, I have no idea who you are, I don't know what your, your grief is, uh, you're looking very fragile, I didn't say these things. Uh, but there's no way I'm going to go out in the back room with you. But we could talk privately down the front. No, I want to talk out in one of the back rooms. So, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm really sorry. Uh, what's your name? Didn't want to tell me his name. Well, I just want to talk. And I said, well, we'll, we'll talk down here. There's nobody in the front half of the church, so no conversation was going to be overheard. In the end, uh, he agreed, though he was aggrieved. And he got down to the front here and he straight away started in on, on a... a, a what's the best word, a, a, a litany of complaints about the church, you know, the worship and the teaching, and I, I mean, you haven't even been here. And I tell you, my friends, I could feel the old self rising up 
And I was thinking, Vaiji, you might be big, but I'm pretty big too. And uh, <laughs> you, you want to take, take on my church? Yeah? Let's, let's have at it sort of thing. And I tell you, if we'd kept on that trajectory, there would have been blood on the floor. But what happened was amazing. And I tell you this because I think it is uh, evidence and an encouragement of what happens with a transformed mind. In that moment, just as I thought the old self was really starting to rev up, God's Holy Spirit turned up. And God's Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, David, let me help you see this person through my eyes. And instantly, and I say this as as much testimony as, uh, as supporting evidence of the message, instantly there was a draining of anger and frustration and annoyance And instead of standing in front of me, an angry man, I saw a hurting man. And my whole body relaxed, my tone changed, my attitude towards him changed. Uh, We didn't actually have a productive conversation, but we didn't have a fight either. And he left and I've never seen him again. I have no idea who he was. I've never forgotten just how easy it was for that old self to well up and want to have a go and the transformed mind, the mercy of God at work uh, that actually drained that away and replaced it with a vision of a person in front of me who was a hurting, damaged person, a person who was probably struggling with mental health, probably substance abuse, who would know? But to see someone else through the eyes of Christ, to see the world through the eyes of Christ, that's the evidence of a transformed mind and that's what we are to aspire to. That's what we are to allow God's Holy Spirit to do in us. That's what happens as we soak ourselves in the Word of God. Ultimately, uh, if, we, uh, if we come to Philippians chapter 1, Paul appeals to the Christians in Philippians, make my joy complete by being like-minded, and he says, your attitude, your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's our goal and our aim, to have a mind like the mind of Christ, that we might look at our world through the eyes of Jesus, to see people through the eyes of Jesus and so be able to minister to this hurting world with the hands and feet of Jesus, the living sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful again for your living word. And you are mighty in each one of us. You have made us, you love us, you live in us, you've put every cell in us together that make up our being. You are the Lord of our lives, you are the Lord of our minds. And today, God, we confess that we have believed things that are not true about you, that are not true about ourselves, that are not true about others, that are not true about our world, and we are sorry, Lord. Forgive us because you are good. And our prayer is that you would let your ways live in us, the old ways in us die off and renew our thinking to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. Lord, we do pray that you would help stop connections in our thinking which is tied to our former way of life and form new thoughts and patterns with your truth in us. Father, help us to discern and hunger for truth, to look at ourselves and others through your eyes and in every situation and circumstance that we find ourselves in this week, approach it in the strength of the Holy Spirit, informed by your word and approach these things through the eyes and actions of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness and for the miraculous way you have made us. Please remake our minds to be more like yours today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
let's continue that prayer as we sing uh, this song, asking.